Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and my guest today is Ken Atchity, and he is a professional story merchant, and if you've watched this podcast or listened to this podcast at all, you know I love good stories, and really, most of the time that I'm chatting with my guests, who are brilliant, all of them, we're talking about their stories because they're just so important. So Ken has a fascinating story, and he has more than 40 years of experience in the publishing world and over 20 years in entertainment. He has successfully built best-selling careers for novelists, nonfiction writers, and screenwriters from the ground up. And he has produced more than 30 films. I'm going to get him to share some of those. You're going to recognize most of them. And in these decades spent in the world of stories prompted him to tell his very own story and that story is called My Obit, Daddy Holding Me, Volume 1. And by the way, this was not the original suggested title, and that's a story all on its own. So good morning, Ken. Welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Well, thank you, Denise. It's great to be there and to be talking to you in gumbo weather down there. Oh, it is gumbo weather. It, like I live in the deep south. We were talking about this a minute ago in the virtual green room. And we have, you know, because you have lived down you from here, I believe, originally. But in the deep south, my part of it, we have basically two seasons, hot and hotter than hell. And the mud season covers most of those seasons. So when we get actual winter weather, a lot of people are like, oh, turn on the heater. Me, I'm flinging the windows open and breathing in that clean air. So I'm happy. Yeah, I remember the hotter than hell very vividly because I, when I was a kid walking along shell roads with my bare feet, uh, I remember seeing the tree in the distance and just praying that I could make it as far as that tree because it oh, was so hot. You, you it thought, is. Then you get to the tree and see something else in the distance and figure that would be your next goal is to try to get there. <laughs> When I first moved, it is. When I first moved here, long, long time ago, I thought, "Oh, you know, mowing the grass, I can do that. I'm a big girl." I fainted. I threw up, and then I fainted. And I, I don't mow the grass. I hire people. Yeah, yeah. Mowing the grass was uh, one of the the most torturous things you could do, because you couldn't re- you couldn't avoid the, the heat when you're out there. Uh, on a tractor or on a, you know, a little rolling lawnmower. Oh, uh, was, <laughs> I remember it well. One of, the, one of my jobs as a kid was pulling weeds out of rice fields. And uh, that was like you'd make it from levee to levee and just pray you could make it to the next levee. And, you know, my cousin would be telling me about coach whips and that they could kill you and they were so dangerous and, you start thinking, well, maybe that wouldn't be so bad <laughs> compared to just. I get it. Yeah. 
Listen, we I, we have so much to talk about. I mean, you are a professional story merchant, and you're the head of Story Merchant Book and Agity Productions. What are those, and what got you going down that road? Because, listen, stories, you know it and I know it, they're so important. Our entire history is, is storytelling. I mean, let's, we can argue about the Bible. That's all storytelling. Everything is storytelling. It's handed down from generation to generation. Some of it sticks with us. Some of it doesn't. But it's important that we know how to tell a story, how to hear a story, and how to share a story. So let's talk about you for a bit. So how did you get to where you are now? Well, it was <laughs> that's a long and interesting story, which is what the book is about. But uh, even the word history is, you know, got story in it, and it's they say history is written by the by the winners, you know, by the conquerors. And uh, so, getting to tell your own story is what my life is all about. And uh, I, I guess I just decided that getting on toward, you know, the end of the, the, that whole journey. I just would not think it's fair if somebody else wrote my obituary when I spent my life as a writer. <clears throat> I just thought I should write it myself because then I get to tell my story my way. And uh, that's what it's all about. I mean, it, I always say if a, if a Martian landed on Earth, first thing we would ask him is, what is your story? And that's the first thing he'd want to know about us. What's your story? Uh, we start by swapping stories and there's a famous scene in the Iliad Homer's epic on the battlefield when one hero, uh, Glaucus, meets another, Diomedes, and they're about to kill each other in a duel. But one of them asks him first what his name is, and he says, I am Glaucus, you know, Glaucus the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And suddenly the other warrior throws his spear into the ground and says, there are plenty of other Trojans for me to kill and plenty of Achaeans for you to kill, but I am not going to kill you on this battlefield because my great-grandfather, you know, spared the life of your great-grandfather, and on the mantelpiece of our palace back home, there's still a, a gift that was given between them that signifies their friendship. And so here, a case where a story actually saved a life directly, and, um, and um, you know, if, you, if you're being tried for a crime or murder, and you you get a good attorney, like O.J. Simpson, for example, you, his that that attorney tells a story that the jury decides is better than the than the story that the uh, prosecution tells. So it's it's about stories, dueling stories. You know, if if, if a, a, a car dealer tells a good story about the car you're about to buy, then, then you might buy it. But if you don't believe his story, you're not going to buy it. So we, we start with stories and, and, and end with stories. That's just the nature of our life. And I think people were telling stories in caves, and that's what led some of them to go out hunting and others to stay in the safety of the cave. Well, that's exactly right. Living in the South, we've all heard the stories about you know Confederates and Yankees finding out that they're brothers or they're kin and going, oops, maybe I shouldn't shoot you. I mean, it's, yeah, stories are important. So your book, I mean, you're calling it your obit and you just told us why, but that wasn't, our our mutual friend Devin Blaine introduced us. And when she told me about the story title, I just went, oh, I have to talk with him. 
what was that original suggested story title? Because it's long and it's funny. Well, it's just the, the story is filled with so many things like I'm half Cajun, half Lebanese. I'm, I'm born in the South, raised in the Midwest, studied on the East Coast, lived on the West Coast. Um, it, it, I started putting all these contradictions down. and Somebody said, that's what you should call the book, this whole list of contradictions. And uh, the marketing friend of mine said, that'll never fit on the back of a, a spine. And, and it'll never work in a list of books, so you forget that. <laughs> yeah. But that, well, that's how it happened. Yeah, what you shared with me was it, the suggested title was My Intensely Madcap Lebanese Cajun Jesuit Schizoid Terminally Narcissistic Food-Focused East Coast, West Coast, Georgetown, Yale Career-Changing Cross-Dressing I, I don't even want to know about that part Runaway Catholic Italophile I'm not I don't know exactly what that means. Paradoxically, paradoxically dramatic, linguistic, <laughs> I'm losing my tongue here, linguistically neurotic, Hollywood academic, ADD, overcompensating, niche boring. I don't even know what this other one is, but your designer said that it wouldn't fit on the spine. And I get that. <laughs> so, yeah. You, you have an interesting story. Yeah. I just thought that that's not going to work, but, um, I, I put it on the back of the book for those who wanted to try a jawbreaker like you just attempted. <laughs> I tried. I didn't make but it. I'm sorry. Right. And, and I just think, well, my life has been a whole series of reconciling opposites and learning to not only live with them, but celebrate them and enjoy them. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, th- that's what it's about. And, uh, hopefully it'll teach people some things as they go through it and observations about life and how to deal with it. But uh, when you think about it, life is an opportunity for you to get out there and have your own adventures so you can tell your own story. You know, that's what they meant when Sinatra singing my way because he did all these things and he designed it himself as he went along. And then he got to sing about it um, because he did live his life his, his way, and I've been fortunate enough to, to do it myself. You know, that's a choice, though, isn't it? I mean, many of us say, well, you know, I'm just going to say safe. Stay safe. My windows are open. My feet are cold. I'm just going to tell you right now. I'm happy, but I'm cold. Okay, so here's the thing. I mean, so many people... We, we make our own choices. We make our own stories. If you want to live a smaller life than other people, that is entirely up to you, and nobody can take that away from you. If you want to do a Frank Sinatra or a Ken Atchity, you can do that as well, and nobody can take that away from you. And I think that's really what I'm you know, pulling from the, your story and your book, that you can, you know, to use those famous words, do it your way. Yeah, and nothing's stopping you except your own imagination, basically. Right. And we we get this imagination, and we're, you know, we, we go with it. And uh, I remember my my mother was a huge influence on my storytelling. She was from the south, and you know, down there, sitting on the front porch in uh, Eunice, a few miles north of where you are, 
I would be listening to stories, and if it was my Uncle Wib telling the story, I would sit there for hours and bring him coffee. But if my Uncle Ed came in and wanted to tell a story, the, suddenly the porch got vacant. People just disappeared because he was the worst storyteller in the family. And uh, I started noticing that and listening to what made one uncle a great storyteller and the other one a terrible storyteller. And that's when I started learning about stories. You know, stories have to grab and hold the attention of the audience. And if they don't, then uh, the audience starts disappearing. And in today's world, we have a little magic wand in our hands that allows us to disappear. It's called a remote control. And we, we will switch channels the minute we, we aren't riveted to the, to the screen. And uh, so that's something that I'm always aware of. It's that the storyteller had to have crafts and techniques that held people's attention. Uh, in other words, the most important character in a story, I always tell my clients and students, is uh, the audience. You've got to recognize that the reader or the audience is the most important character. And if you don't keep him happy, then there's no point to even telling your story. Exactly. And that, that brings me to what I really wanted to talk with you about, or what are the things every great story has to have, has to have. And you're right. The audience is very, very important. And I love that you you started learning this at a very young age on a porch in Eunice, Louisiana. Look, we're all great storytellers down here. It's hard to meet somebody that can't just entertain the heck out of you in the grocery store. I mean, you big Cajuns are big, big, big storytellers. A lot of it's baloney, but it's still funny as all get out. And it, you know, you'll you'll pick up pieces and go, that might be true. All oh, the rest of it's garbage. But that was a great story. So what? And when you're starting a story, I'm guessing it has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. But what are some of the, the things that are not necessarily obvious to people who need to be telling stories, great stories, to catch your interest, to hold your interest, to make you want to come back? Well, that's a great question. And one of them is that it, there's no wasted words in it. It's, it there's nothing dull uh-huh. about a story. Some, you know, Elmer Leonard, some great writers said, you know, stories are just life with all the dull spots taken out. And um, that's really true when you think about it. If you had to describe what somebody did all day, it would put somebody to sleep within a few minutes <clears throat> because a lot of what we do just isn't exciting and dramatic. But in a story, everything fits with everything else and moves it along. And one of the ways we learn stories is just by joke-telling. There's so many Cajun jokes that uh, – you know, it, it's unbelievable. Like, it, you pride yourself on being able to come back with a joke to every joke somebody was telling you. So you collected jokes growing up, and and jokes don't waste any words. You know, there's, there's stories, fishing stories. Like, one of my favorites is this Cajun is walking up from the creek with a, you know, from the bayou with a, with a whole string of saccolay um, carrying that, and he runs it to a game warden. And the game warden goes, hey, how you doing? What you got there? He goes, well, I got me a, a good string of saccolay. What do you think? And he goes, well, do you know that this is uh, October and, and, and the season on saccolay is closed? And he says, well, of course, but these are my fish. And he says, your fish? What do you think I was born yesterday? And he goes, no, sir. Uh, I just, you know, it's Saturday morning, so 
every Saturday morning, I, I, I take them down to the bayou and I let them loose and they swim around. And then I clap my hands and they come back. I put them back on the stringer, take them home, and uh, wait till next Saturday. And the game warden goes, you know, you're going to be in big trouble unless you can prove what you just said because I was not born yesterday. And he says, well, sir, I'm not saying you were born any time, but, you know, whatever. He said, well, let's go right back to the to the water here, and I want to see this with my own eyes. So they walk back down to the bayou, and the guy takes all his fish off the stringer and lets them out one by one into the water, and they all, you know, disappear. And after a few minutes, the game warden says, well, and he says, well, what, sir? He goes, well, are you going to clap your hands? He goes, clap my hands. Why would I clap my hands? He says, to bring the fish back? He goes, what fish? So he just destroyed that's, the sports. Yeah, that's exactly he, right. So there's no waste of words in the story. No, it just uh, goes along and everything is necessary to keep it moving. And uh, it, it has a satisfying because uh, the Cajun gets away without a ticket and Game Warden has nothing to prove anything. You know, he could say, well, we had this conversation, but, you know, can't put that in the court of law. So it's, the, the joke does its job in just a few minutes. And, uh, you know, you, you have to be able to tell it in such a way to keep people's attention all the way through. And so one thing you learn is that there are short jokes and there are longer jokes. And, you know, a longer joke requires more tension and more drama. Uh, and sooner or later, if you pay attention to all this, you're starting to learn the art of storytelling. And see, that is important. And I'm, while you're talking about the, the Cajun joke, I'm trying to remember. He was one of my favorite Cajun humorists, and he passed away a number of years. And for the life of me, I can see him in my head, but I can't remember his name. But I was in my car one day, and he was on the radio talking about his beautiful Red Bull. I had to, you know, as a bull bull, not Red Bull the drink. Mm-hmm. I had to pull yeah. over and cry. I was laughing so hard. That's the funniest thing to this date I have ever seen. I'll find it and send it to you. It's, it's hilarious. You have to understand a Cajun accent, though. If you don't, you're going to be left in the weeds. I'll just warn you right now. Yeah, I know. It's it's unique. There's nothing like it in the world. And one of my books is uh, Cajun Household Wisdom, and it's filled with my favorite jokes and and just little examples of Cajun wit and wisdom and the, and the, and the accent. Um, and it kind of starts with Cajuns versus Creoles and why that's an argument you don't want to get into if you're no. in South Louisiana. you do not. <laughs> you know, and don't say, talk oh, about just... your gumbo. Mine's the best. That's all there is to it. <laughs> and don't tell me the jambalaya is a Cajun dish because that will be – that that'll get us in fighting immediately. Um, Very nice. So, yeah, so it's uh, th- this is what makes us, you know, have common uh, commonality is being able to compare stories, and uh, so people listen to a story carefully so they can tell something similar in return, and then before you know it, you know, people are bonded. Um, that's how we bond with with. You know, anybody is through a story. And politicians, you know, they're up there telling a story, and you either buy their story or you start looking around for somebody whose story you do believe. And somebody goes on a first date, you know, a woman comes back and tells her mother, you know, I just couldn't buy this guy's story. Um, 
there's something wrong with his story. Uh, because that's what happens on first dates. People, you know, exchange stories. So it's nothing more important than learning how to tell a story when you're growing up. And my mother was always telling me stories and telling me to write stories. And I started doing it because, you know, you want to make your mother happy. And before I knew it, I was committed to it for a lifetime of editing and, you know, looking for stories and writing stories and publishing stories and uh, finally producing stories. I finally got to that stage in my life where I wanted to take them all the way to the screen and then beyond. And I wanted to ask you about that because you have worked with, I think it's Dave Pettijan I'm thinking of, but I'll come back to that. You have worked with, you know who he is? Yeah, no, I I knew him. When I was working on that book, I'll listen to my, He's one of the people I kind of interviewed and talked to. Oh, I love his stuff. Okay, so you've interviewed, and that's, that's a good segue to what I wanted to talk with you about. You, Oh, to, well, let me back up just a bit. Let's go back to, I think it was your Uncle Ed that you just right. didn't want to hear from. What did he do that just had you going, oh, geez, I think I need some tea. I'll be back in an hour. Yeah, he he would describe he would stop at a detail like an orange and he would start talking about how he peel the orange and he could turn that into an hour uh, of peeling an orange and then eating it wedge by wedge. And by the time he got to the second wedge, you were, you know, sound asleep because he never got to the point, you know, the, his jokes just went on and on and on and they weren't dramatic they were appreciative of detail. He was an agricultural specialist, so he understood detail, but he, he sure didn't understand audiences. Um, he didn't notice that his audience was sound asleep or, you know, he didn't notice anything because he got into this kind of coma when he started telling a story um, that ignored everything in the room. And the storyteller who does that, I used to, used to take my writers to Holly, you know, into a Hollywood meeting for them to pitch their stories, but, I would soon discover that some writers go into a kind of coma when they start pitching their story and they lose track of everything in the room with them. And, you know, when the buyer starts glossing over, you know, his eyes are glazing over, you can tell that he's not winning with this story. He needs to switch stories or he's just going to get kicked out of the room. And when I see a writer not having any consciousness of the person he's talking to, then I thought, you know what, I am not going to take him to any more pitch meetings because it's not going to help. I will go in and pitch his story myself and sell it for him, uh, and he can come in and take all the, the credit and the money, but <clears throat> he, he doesn't know how to tell a story. Telling a story means focusing on the eyeballs of your audience and making sure you're with them all the way. And Uncle Ed never, Uncle Ed never did that. Did that. Yeah, it sounds like, and I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with the fact that people who can write cannot necessarily speak. You know, they're, I, I guess they're just different brain functions. I don't know. Now, I've met people who can do both very, very well. You're one of them. But some people can just lay down words on paper like, oh, my goodness, I can't put this down. But if you meet them... Your, your car keys are in your hand quickly. you got to go. And I've had that right. happen. And that, that 
disconnect is fascinating to me. How does that even happen? If you can write a story, why can't you tell a story? But I guess it's a matter of what you're interested in. Have you ever noticed or tried to figure out what what that's all about? Well, yeah, it, it's all about entertainment. You know, some kids just learn how to tap dance or learn to play the fiddle and uh, what keeps them going is seeing the excitement on people's faces as they start hearing them fiddle. And uh, if they, if everybody looked bored and started looking restless, then you better stop fiddling or you better switch tunes. And, uh, or tap so, dance or do something different. It's a relationship with your audience. They think that, they think that it makes a difference. So that's fascinating to me. You would think that if you can do one, you can do the other, and it would be seamless, but it's not, which is, I find that very, very interesting. So you have worked, and let's go back to when I interrupted you. You have, you know, worked with a lot of people, a lot of people, and you've produced, and we're talking about entertainment now, more than 30 films, including The Meg, which was um, Jason Statham. How do you pronounce his last name? Jason Statham. I'm not a movie watcher. You're going to learn that very quickly. I just, give me a book, I'm in, but eh, TV, not so much. And you've worked with, um, and that made over 50, 500 million worldwide, Angels in the Snow, Up, which I have actually seen, Erased, Hysteria, uh, the informant, Hugh Dancy, informant, uh, and you've worked with Betty Betty White. You know, everybody misses her right now. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. So how did you wind up doing that kind of work? I've got to know. Uh, well, it's a good question. It was First of all, I was a professor of comparative literature for almost 20 years at Occidental College in Los Angeles. And I realized, you know, my life was all about stories, analyzing stories, <clears throat> teaching stories, <clears throat> helping people with their, their books or their poems or whatever it was. And uh, I decided one day that I was not exactly tired, but I wanted to be on the other side of storytelling. I wanted to be on the storytelling side, not on the story analysis side. I'd, I'd written hundreds of book reviews for the Los Angeles Times and the New Haven Register and Kansas City Star and uh, all over the place. But I wanted to write, uh, I wanted to be working directly with the stories. So uh, one day I was explaining that to an editor friend who'd come to speak in one of my classes. And he said, you should go into Hollywood, go to entertainment world. That's all they do. You know, they deal with stories directly. And I, I started thinking about it. I came up with an idea that ended up becoming 16 movies. Um, Shades of Love series, and uh, and I was sold. And once I did that, then I never went back to academia, and uh, I, I, I was much happier, even though I was now uh, in the least secure world that I could imagine. I had been in the most secure world because I was a, uh, a tenured professor, could never get fired, and suddenly I, I resigned from that and went into a place where you actually never know where your next nickel is coming from, uh, Hollywood, and uh, somehow managed to hang in there for the last 30-something years and loved it because it was a real world. It was like a jungle of storytelling. One, one day early in my career, I got a call from a person I learned later is called a tracker, 
I mean, when I think of trackers, I think about bloodhounds and Indians, you know. But uh, th- this is a story tracker. She wanted to know if I controlled the rights to such and such a story, and I told her I did, and she said, thank you. That's all I needed to know. And I go, well, wait a minute. Who, who, you know, who told you to call me? She said, oh, that's my secret, and I've got it work for my clients, and they needed to know who controls these rights. And I hung up, and I thought, wow. Stories are, I thought they were important in the academic world, but here's a world in which they pay people to just track down stories, and then they end up paying millions of dollars for it. Like Meg sold for $3 million to Doubleday, began a series of books, and it sold for over a million to Disney, then over a million later to New Line. And um, here's a world that really cares about stories and pays a lot of money for them. And... uh, I thought I'd finally found the promised land. It had monsters in it, which I then learned, and monsters were pretty fierce. But it was truly the world of storytelling. And uh, I've been in that world ever since then and learned something new every day, just about, and never never regretted it. But it, if anything, it underlines the importance of stories in human, you know, human life. So you can't leave me hanging there. What happened with the story tracker? What happened with this this product or this project that you had the rights to? Did it go anywhere? Yeah, a few a few weeks later, I got a call from a studio, and they they were very interested in the story. and And I said, "How did you learn about the story?" And they said, "Well, we don't, you know, we need to protect our sources." But I knew how they learned because I had sent this manuscript to only one editor in New York and uh, on purpose. And, and I knew then that there was a leak between New York and Hollywood, which I since learned how to exploit to the benefit of the storytellers. And uh, long story short, uh, I ended up auctioning the story to Hollywood. And that, that was a sale of over a million dollars because four studios wanted, wanted that story. And the tracker was the one who identified that I controlled the rights to that story. Uh, so that had a happy ending. And a lot of the times you'll store, a tracker will call you and, and nothing ever happens. Um, but most of the time you end up getting a call from, then you know who this tracker's client was. In that case, it was New Line Studio. Um, and actually, in that case, it was George Clooney's company. Uh-huh. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was in that yeah, case, it was, George, case it was George Robert Lawrence. Robert Lawrence. Uh, good tracker. Tracker. <laughs> Find me. Find me. So that was exciting. That was exciting. <laughs> you reckon? I think I would be jumping up and down in my my office and doing the little happy dance because <laughs> that was exciting. <laughs> so I, I'm curious to know, because you said something that had me going, what the heck? Why did you turn this manuscript into just one house in New York? What what had you thinking? I'm just going to go with one person and see what happens. Well, the way it happened was that the writer, who I'd already sold several of his screenplays, he was a screenwriter, not a novelist, uh, and he, he called me one day just before I jumped on a plane for New York and told me this new idea he had for a screenplay. And I said, John, that is an incredible idea. I'm going to call you when I get to New York, and uh, we'll talk about it. And uh, But it's a great idea. 
start working on it. And long story short, I jumped on the plane, went to New York, went straight to the plaza, to the Oak Room at the Plaza Hotel to meet this editor, this particular editor, for a drink, uh, you know, according to my agenda. And uh, we had a drink, and while we were having our drink, I, I pitched her this story. And she said, that is the best idea for a novel I've ever heard in my life. I said, great, great. Yeah, I knew you'd like it. So I went back to my apartment in New York, and I called John, and I said, John, forget about the screenplay. You're going to write a novel. And he said, I've never written a novel before in my life. And I said, well, guess what? Nobody who's never written a novel has ever written a novel. Why should you be any different? You know, why don't you just start writing it, and I'll get you through it chapter by chapter. So believe it or not, he started faxing me chapters, and I would read them immediately and call him back and tell him, you know, how to stay on the track that he had set down. And when he finished about three months later, I thought, I'm just going to send it to one person, which is Jennifer, this woman that I pitched it to, and see what she thinks. So I sent it to her, and I didn't tell her that she was the only one I was sending it to. Because she was just a test read as far as I was concerned. And I didn't hear from her, but I did hear from this tracker. And then I heard from George Clooney's guy. And, uh, you know, the rest was history. It ended up being a screenplay, uh, but only after the studio had bought the novel. Uh, And that's how that story kind of played out. And that's how I learned. And I'd only sent it to one just because I wanted to test the market before I went out wide. But I didn't have to go out wide because things started happening. And, you know, things take on a life of their own. And you you just you, it's like you're jumping on a, an unbroken horse and you need to just hold on. And that's what happened with that one. It was a it was a bucking horse. And we landed it with uh, several million dollars deals. It became a novel after it became to fail to Hollywood. That That is fascinating. So why did you never hear from Jennifer? Did you ever figure that out? Well, I did hear from her eventually, and I asked her whether she'd shown it to anybody, and she said no. And, um, you know, I, I, I never did tell her because I, I wanted to tell her. I wanted to catch her to rights and just kind of brag that, you know, what had happened. But then I thought, Gee, it was much more useful to my clients if I don't say a word because now I've kind of identified a black hole, you know, uh, where, where the science fiction writers used to talk about going through a black hole to get from one part of the universe to the other. Um, and I figured out this wormhole uh, by sending the book to her because she would she leaked anything she got uh, to Hollywood. And I figured out they were wormholes in the other direction where somebody in Hollywood would leak something to New York because those were the days when the studios were, you know, Viacom, which which owned Paramount, also owned a bunch of book companies like Scrivener's and, uh, you know, uh, Pocket Books and Simon & Schuster. And so it worked in both directions. And I just used that as a piece of information. I was one of the few people who in those days who worked in both New York publishing and in Hollywood uh, production. And uh, it, it was fun to have that little fact to myself and not have to, uh, you know, not, not tell people about it in New York or in Hollywood. So she basically is a dishonest person is what I'm taking from you. 
Well, well see, the, the, the word the dishonest word. is not, I would never apply it to her. In fact, if you really understand the way stories work, it, it's it's an antiquated kind of religious word that doesn't really work. I mean, if you're out in the wilderness surviving and you tell a story that saves your life, um, and, and then you tell the opposite story, you know, an hour later to save your life in a different way, is that dishonesty? You know, it doesn't have a very useful place in in, in the kind of in the life of a survivor, to use that gotcha. word. You know what I mean? You know what I, mean? I understand. So uh, maybe not ethical is what I'm thinking of. I think it, it sounds unethical to me, but it landed you and a lot of other people in a great place. So there is that. Yeah, and she ended up publishing the book. So, uh, you know, I gave her every possible favoritism when it came to getting the book deal done. That's interesting. You're a nicer person than I am. Really, but, but you also understood, you know, that there was a wormhole. That there was, as you said earlier, there was a connection between the two arenas, and you figured out how to use that to help your clients and yourself. So, great story. Yeah. Well, thank you. And yeah, if it hadn't gone well, then I may have a whole different attitude toward, you know, everything connected with it, including the word. But uh, it went very well. It turned out happily. Yeah, it sounds like it. So what are you working on right now? I mean, you if you don't mind, you know, just give us some of your career highlights. What are some of your favorite movies that have been made because of the work that you've done? What are some of your favorite books because of the work that you've done? Well, that particular book was definitely one of my favorites. It was called Henry's List of Wrongs. And it was about a guy who uh, realized one day that his whole life was just a series of doing wrongs against people. And he decided to make a list of his biggest wrongs and then go out and correct them one by one. And uh, it was a wonderful story. It is a wonderful story. It's never been made because of the the strange way things work in Hollywood. It's, it's It's in kind of eternal turnaround is the, the word for it is turnaround, where a studio paid so much money that in order for a new studio to pick up and go forward with the project, it would cost them $10 million just in rights before they even could start getting a screenplay written. Um, and But it was a wonderful story that took us many places and got many people excited, got stars interested, uh, everybody from George Clooney to Jim Carrey. Uh, and uh, it, it's one of the stories about stories in Hollywood is that it never got made. It's, it's in turnaround limbo. Um, and that was one great story. The same writer wrote Life or Something Like It, and that was a wonderful story that we shot in Vancouver to double for Seattle. Um, in other words, we... It was set in Seattle, uh, and we actually shot it in Vancouver, a city that can look like Seattle. Uh, And the reason, of course, is you shoot it there because Canadian tax rebate gave you a credit of 30 to 40% on the movie, meaning that if the movie costs $50 million, 
then you actually get about a 20 to $30 million refund on the movie. So suddenly you, you don't want to shoot it in Seattle anymore. You want to shoot it where that rebate can occur, which is Vancouver uh, in this case. And uh, that was one of his movies. And Joe Somebody was another one. Um, one of my favorite movies with Tim Allen. And we shot that in uh, Minneapolis. <clears throat> and that was a, an adventure in itself because Tim Allen, uh, just to give you one example of many, he had this customized trailer that he insisted on being in any movie he was in. So somebody drives the trailer from L.A. to wherever it is, Minneapolis, and you have to park the trailer, and it's a huge trailer. So we were shooting in the Target Center, and there was only one place in the Target Center big enough for this trailer, so we do that. But then we cast Julie Bowen, uh, and her agent insisted that her trailer be the same size as Tim Allen's trailer, and we had a problem because you couldn't park two trailers that size in the Target Center. Uh, there wasn't room. So we finally had to negotiate a thing where she allowed her trailer to be parked on the street outside the Target Center, and I'm sure that that cost us some extra money. And then we had to deal with all the other needs that Tim Allen had to to work with, and uh, he did a great job in the movie, and he was fun to work with, but there were a lot of issues along the way. I could go on and on about that, but, but some of the fun things that happened on that movie, but... Uh, every movie being made is is a bunch of stories in itself. I would think, and listen, I'm a Tim Allen fan. I've always liked him. And, you know, I'll just say this about the Santa Claus. I love one and two, hated three. So whoever built that one, shame on them. That was a terrible movie. But yeah. I, I wouldn't have thought that he would be difficult. And I'm not getting that he's difficult to work with, but I'm – guessing from what you're saying that when people have a, have a lot of needs, wants, they need to be kind of catered to, don't they? Well, they do because you want, you obviously want your star to be happy all the time because he's, um, you know, you want him to perform well. So happy stars perform well and unhappy stars, you know, often don't. They can take it out on you. I once had a, an actress who wanted us to give her a production gift And because we didn't give her a gift at the level she expected, which, of course, was not budgeted in our film at all, she ended up making us wait for three hours one day, and that cost us about $10,000 of waiting time while the whole crew is standing around waiting until she shows up on the set. And, of course, it would have been much cheaper to to give her the, the diamond watch she wanted to begin with uh, so you have to be careful with, you know, when you're dealing with stars. And, and, and other stories, Angelina Jolie, uh, I ran into her on the set of Life or Something Like It, and she was looking very nervous and fidgety uh, between shots while they were fixing, the, you know, the electrical wiring and all that kind of stuff. And I said, are you okay? And she goes, yeah, I just have to pee so bad. I'm sorry, but I don't want to interrupt the flow here. So, hey. I grabbed the AD and I said, "Please, you know, stop the music here for a minute. She needs to, she needs to go use the facilities." So she did, and she was so grateful. But I thought, here's the opposite: a star who not only doesn't draw attention to herself and doesn't want to cause any disruption, as opposed to one who has big trailer problems or, 
you know, big production gift problems. So people are people no matter where you run into them. And uh, it's always a delight to run into a human being like Angelina was who just lets, she wants everybody to be working together and she doesn't want to be the one who causes disruption on the set. <clears throat> Interesting. And I would have thought that she would be difficult. Yeah, well, yeah, that's well, it. You that's don't, it. Know, you don't from know from You time. don't know. Start working with them, you know? One thing I do know is she is stunning. That's one of the most beautiful yeah. women. Yep, she definitely was and is. And I'm amazed when I see her now all these years later that she's still as beautiful as she was back then. Oh, that bone structure, it's hard not to be, to be honest. So you... What are you working on right now? Is it something that we should be waiting breathlessly to to see or hear? Uh, Well, we're working on a horror movie called The Seeding, uh, based on a novel by Ellen Gibson called Dead of Winter. And uh, we're in the final throes of putting the financing together so we can shoot it in Budapest. And uh, we're excited about that. Uh, Meg 2, the sequel to The Meg, just went into production. Um, I think today actually was the first day, <clears throat> and it's being shot in London to begin with, and uh, that just started. We're waiting for. We control the rights to uh, William Beale's novels. He, he wrote Primal Fear and Sharky's Machine, and uh, one of his novels called Thai Horse. Uh, we're hoping that will start shooting in the next three months in Thailand, and. Uh, that will be exciting. They changed the name of it to Hatcher after the main character. Uh, so we're excited about that. And uh, I wrote the, the script to a, a musical, gospel rock musical called Forever and Ever. And we're looking for development funding to get that started now. It's based on the music of Thomas Hoagie, who's a, a Canadian musician, songs that have been making the rounds for the last 10 years, but they, there wasn't a story. And he hired me to uh, to write a book, as it's called, you know, to put a story around these songs. And we're excited about that because uh, we're making a sizzle reel right now to, to get the investors interested and looking for Christian investors because it's Christian-based musical. So I'm excited about that. So I always have a lot to be excited to say. Stories are like seeds at the beginning, and then they start flowering. And one day you wake up and you're in the middle of a garden with things flowering all around. And, you know, it's been years since you planted some of the seeds, and some of you just planted yesterday. But they all take on a life of their own, and you have to listen to them and give them what they need to be nurtured and keep going. So stories are really your life, aren't they? I mean, I'm listening to you talk about these different projects and processes and just the passion in your voice is astonishing, really. You don't get bored, do you? No, I I have to say that I am fortunate not to have been bored very often in my life because my, my mind is always either in the middle of coming up with a new story or reading a story, sitting there in my morning read the first thing I do is with a cup of coffee is to sit there and read a, a manuscript and then discovering something that I know can make a great movie or a great series. That's the most exciting feeling in my life. Um, and I've always been fortunate to 
there hasn't been a, a day going by where I'm not excited about the stories I'm dealing with. Even when they get into crazy legal problems and crazy, you know, human problems, um, it's always fascinating to see what a story goes through to get told to the world. I mean, it took the lost Valentine something like 11 years to get to the screen. It took Meg 22 years to get to the screen. Others, like Joe, somebody took three or four months before we were shooting it. Um, but it's always it's always fascinating. One time I was sitting at a bar in London reading a screenplay that had just been FedEx to me from my office, and it was a screenplay for one of our stories. In fact, it was screenplay to uh, Henry's List of Wrongs that I mentioned before. And I started reading it, you know, sipping my martini, and I started reading the story, and I got to page four, and I called my office, and I go, you guys sent me the wrong script. And my, my assistant in those days said, uh, no, we didn't. Keep reading. And I go, are you kidding me? I read it, and I swear I couldn't find a single word that resembled the original story. It had been completely rewritten. I hated it. And I called my attorney, and he goes, yeah, I'm afraid you'd say that, because when they hired this director to rewrite it, he often ends up totally changing everything. And I said, well, he did, and I don't like it, and what are we going to do now? And it ended up being a complicated legal thing where we we were suddenly attached as producers to this new version of the story, and we wanted the old version of the story, and we talked the studio into keeping the old version of the story. So we were suddenly producing two stories instead of one. It's like from a single you know egg, two completely different creatures evolved. Uh, that's just one of the crazy things that can happen in the story world. So what happened? Did it eventually get made, and did you get your way on it? Uh, actually, uh, actually, this, 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 this was Henry's was the wrong. It didn't uh, get made. It's still, it's that still thing out there. Wow. Yeah, it's still out there. And uh, the book is great. You can read the book still, but uh, you, have not, you will not be able to see the movie until – Somebody's willing to pay $10 million to untangle the rights deal um, so they can go on with the story. We even at one point rewrote it as Cindy's list of wrongs because somebody said, well, one of the reasons it never got made is because it's got a male lead and it's a romantic comedy and usually romantic comedy is a female lead. So let's rethink it as a woman's story. And we did that, and that didn't work either for other complicated reasons. I don't – I'm listening to this, and I'm scribbling, and I'm I'm getting a stomachache just from thinking, oh, my gosh, if I had to go through this on a daily basis, I would probably just sit in a corner and cry. I don't think I, – I know I couldn't do it. I wouldn't have the patience or the understanding yeah, of the process, to be honest. It, it, it does reduce you to kind of jellyfish status once in a while, but you – you you keep going and you keep learning and uh, I've never imagined a career where you could still be learning 35 years into it um, and still be surprised, still be challenged. Uh, and when it comes to like, we think by the time you made your seventh film, it'd be easier. No, actually it never gets easier. Every single one is 
as challenging or more challenging than the ones before um, because they're made up of people, you know, to put a movie together, uh, it's not just takes a village, it takes a small city. You know, sometimes there can be 600 or 700 people involved in a movie, and even the smallest movies have a couple of hundred people involved in them. And because they're people, I mean, you know people, you know your family, you know that any holiday that comes along where there's going to be 35 people together in the same place, there's going to be problems. And uh, there's going to be gossip, there's going to be rumors, there's going to be false rumors, there's going to be some people who believe in in one thing and others who believe in another thing. One of the things I always loved about my Cajun relatives is that when you go to a Thanksgiving dinner, you don't have to just say, well, I hope I love turkey because there's going to be turkey. Well, there's not just going to be turkey if it's a Cajun place. There's going to be turkey and ham and maybe roast and chicken and all kinds of other stuff to choose from because, yep. you know, that's the way Cajuns are. I'm not Cajun, but I make that meal every year, and I love doing it. Listen, I wanted to go back, and you're right, and one rule in my house while we're on Thanksgiving, do not drink in my home because people get ugly and nasty, and I will throw you out. So, there's, you know, there's that. Listen, here, I wanted to go back just a bit, Ken, because when we first started talking, you said that you were a tenured professor, and you just said, I'm going to go to Hollywood. I'm going to go to New York. How did you find the guts to do that, I guess? And what was your family and your friends, what were their reactions like? Are you nuts? I can hear it now. Well, my father thought I was nuts when I became a professor because he said, you've got to earn a living. And then when I left being a professor 20 years later, he thought I was nuts to be going you know, from being a respected professor to uh, Hollywood, which was, as far as he was concerned, crazy. Uh, and he goes, how are you going to earn a living? And, of course, I wasn't thinking about that in either situation. I was just thinking about doing what I love. And uh, and a few months later, when I actually had him and my mom come up for one of our movie shoots in Montreal, uh, he stopped thinking I was nuts. He he got he really excited. He got excited playing a role, you know, a bit role in a movie. And from that moment onward, he was bragging about me with, with his friends. I didn't know it at the time, but they all told me after his, you know, his funeral that uh, that he was so proud of that. And it was funny because he's he tried to stop me, you know, say you're crazy, you can't give up your tenure, blah blah blah. Just as he thought I was crazy to switch from pre med uh, at Georgetown to uh, studying classics, which led me to be a professor. Uh, so yeah, it's it, all everything is the story behind the story. It does, and listen, and I wanted to ask you that because this is important. So many people are making big leaps in their lives; they're making big changes, and they worry. They worry about what their family and their friends are going to say or think. They worry about where's the money going to come from. They worry about is this sustainable? But you said something so very important that you need to do what you love. You really do because if you hate what you do or you're just not well suited for it, you may make a lot of money. A lot of people do, but deep down they're just kind of going, uh, "Gotta go to work." Uh, I see it all the time. Yeah. 
Exactly. And, and that's, that's, I never wanted to be in that kind of situation. Um, I did enough of that, you know, when I was growing up, I had all kinds of jobs and some of them as tedious as counting nuts and bolts at an aircraft factory. Uh, and I just thought, you know, you only live once for sure. You might as well be doing something you love. And I actually wrote a book called Quit Your Day Job and Live the Life of Your Dreams, which continues to sell to this day and which helps people figure out how to take the steps to do start doing what you love instead of just going to your day job and uh, getting through it every day. Now, you're on Amazon, right? Is that book on Amazon? Because I need to read that one. Although I will say I love what I do, and I crafted and created my own business because – I don't, you know, you don't want me in your office, Ken. I don't play well with others. I run with scissors. I'm not. You don't want me in there, seriously. So for the last 20 years, I have created my own job, well, my own business, yeah. in yeah. my own home, and I love it. I wouldn't do anything different. But I got the usual flack, like, oh, my gosh, how are you going to sustain it? How, <gasps> you know, I mean, I heard it all, and I ignored every bit of it because I needed to do what I needed to do. And I think more and more of us are, are coming to that realization. Yeah, we, we just helped a lady write her book called Piece of Cake because she left being a banker and started opening a bakery. And uh, she got her first orders before she even looked up a cake recipe. She'd never made a cake in her life. And now she's got oh. eight stores in Atlanta and one at the Atlanta court. And uh, years later, she can't believe that her life began kind of by mistake, you know, randomly by choosing to start baking cakes. And that's what you I did. You, you put together your own, yeah, you put okay. together your own recipe that keeps you occupied and happy, and uh, that's the secret. Well, and I discovered my own creativity. I didn't know that I was a creative. I mean, I have a computer science degree. Who figured that one out? Uh, you know, I just decided to stop being a jeweler and become a, a web developer. And it happened in an instant, and I have never looked back. That's fantastic. That's what that's the that's the pattern. You don't need to read that book. It's uh, you, you could write that book. Well, where can people find? I mean, you are on Amazon, but all of your books are on Amazon right now, or is there a, a better place to find them? No, that's the best place. I mean, my my website storymerchant.com has uh, links to all those things and seminars, webinars, books all of that. But, um, yeah, Amazon sells them all. And uh, they're, they're not hard to find if you just Google my name. Right. Listen, I spent some time on your website, and you've got a whole list of really fascinating videos. And there's one that's about four hours. I listen to the whole thing. I never do that. I'm not a, a you know, I don't watch TV. I don't watch movies. I turned that thing on and went about cleaning my house. It was fascinating. So thank you for sharing your entire life practically. And I really suggest that people go find you. One more time, we've got about 60 seconds. Where can people find you? And do you have any kind of last-minute wisdom that you want to share with the audience? Well, uh, yeah, they can find me at storymerchant.com. That's probably the simplest way because you can even find emails there and and you can link to the, that series called Film Courage uh, videos and so on. And uh, I guess my advice to everybody is you only live once for sure and go for it. You know, whatever you're dreaming about doing, turn it, you know, from a dream into a reality, no matter what you have to do to 
to do that. Sometimes you keep your day job until you've accomplished the move. Sometimes you don't. You quit immediately and start doing it. Uh, My book does tell you when and how to do these things. If you want to take a safe, you know, smarter course, I try to show people what I didn't know from experience. I'd learned it in years. I try to shorten people's transition from 10 years down to maybe a year. But anyway, uh, you can find all that uh, by going to storymerchant.com. And my advice to you is go for it and never give up. Just keep going for it. Uh, You'll never regret it. And if you die in the middle of trying to capture your dream, I mean, isn't that by definition a happy death? You don't want to be that person rocking on the rocking chair on your porch thinking, if only I'd done this while I could have. Uh, I'll never have that problem. Um, I don't have any if-only thoughts in my mind because uh, I went for it, and I, I enjoy every minute. Even when I'm miserable, things are not but you still enjoy it. People in legal, I get it because, listen, we're all people and we all have – we can be just as nice as we want to be one minute and the next minute we're trying to rip your eyeballs out. That's just humans. You have to figure out a way to deal with it. So, yeah, listen, Ken – go ahead. I'm sorry. I say, yeah, we're the, we're the worst people in the world to deal with, humans. You know, you can't live with them, can't live without them. That's Very kind true. of the way it is. Very true. And you just have to kind of sit back and go, hmm, do I really want to kill this person or do I want to hear the story? So there it is. Kim, thank you so much. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Fascinating, actually. And I thank you for all of the really wonderful stories and the advice that you've shared with our audience. So be sure to look for us. Before I say goodbye, I'd like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes, Audible, anywhere else you consume your business podcasts. Honestly, you can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. We are everywhere. So just look for your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. Ken, thank you so much. Thank you, Denise. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you and look forward to talking to you again. And uh, good luck with all you're doing. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, Contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.